if you have one, um, there's some old school versions over there. Not King James, not that old, but uh, they are modern translations. Or you can turn a device on. There we go. So Galatians chapter 3. Uh, I think two weeks ago, Phil covered some of this passage. We're going to read from verses 1 through to uh, 22. Actually, let's go to 29, please. Sorry, I know that's all set up now. Just give you a moment. You foolish Galatians. I wonder how that was phrased in his mind. Was it, you foolish Galatians, or you foolish Galatians? Anyway, he's making a point. Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning uh, by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So I ask again. Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it's written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith, on the contrary. It says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. So that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit, of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then 
was the law given at all? It was added because of the transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred to had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. It is, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, be given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Remember, that's an example from everyday life. But he says this. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law. Locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, and there is male, nor, there is, nor is there male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Good old Paul. I hope you kind of follow the gist of that. Remember that Galatians is probably the, the earliest, the, most, uh, the first of the texts that we now have in Scripture. And uh, it kind of addresses the gospel and, and even then some of the things that were brought to undermine it. And Paul is, is seeking to, to confront those who would change or uh, modify or adapt Good news for their own ends, and as such, it ceases to be the good news. He's quite forthright. Foolish ones. Foolish ones. So I want to just set the, the groundwork like this. At Christmas time, I um, uh, was spending uh, Christmas with um, some family friends, and the kind of challenge came to bring a gift for them on Christmas Day. And they had three kids under ten. So, uh, you know, they, they've got lots of glitter and glue and, um, and all those kind of things. And um, they didn't want loud things because there's enough noise. So I came across a thing. I don't know if you've come across it. It's called the Spiel des Jahres. Have you ever heard of that? It's German. Uh, and it's, um, it's, I think Germans quite like board games. And basically it means game of the year. And it's great. So there's a website, and there's people who love board games, and board games are good for family time. There's, there's this website uh, that assesses all the new board games that are made. This panel of gamers, not electronic, but old school, you know, touch and kind of move things around. And they, they come up with a game of the year, and uh, they have the adult category, and then they have the children's category. Bingo, I thought. It wasn't bingo that I got them, but I thought I'm to a winner. So uh, I saw that there was this game called Ice Cool. So I ordered it, and Ice Cool came. Now, Ice Cool is, uh, we got it out of its box on Christmas Day when they unwrapped it, it was all very exciting. And they kind of looked at it like, 
what you do with this? Because it's not like your normal board game. It was this, it's a bit like an, oh, it's not Apple, but it's, it's that so well constructed that there is the, the box that it comes in, but inside the box are lots of other boxes, and inside the, the, the boxes are some cards, and there's some little penguins, because it's set in a nice cold school. You're looking mystified. It'll all become clear. So these three little ones are like, oh, a game. So they kind of got it out, and they had all these boxes all sort of scattered around. And then they, they didn't quite understand it because the sides of the boxes has holes in it. And there were these fish as well, because penguins eat fish. And they were a little bit perplexed. And it was all kind of, um, for a moment, held their attention. Then they didn't understand it. So then they just started playing, A, with the boxes. Another one was playing with the penguins. Another one started to kind of use the fish. And they ignored the cards. You're wondering what's the point. Phil's got this like, what is this about? <laughs> they did say that. So what I needed at that moment, because it all seemed very confusing and all very scattered, I thought, I, what we need to do is read the rules. How to set it up. And they thought that was really boring. It is boring. But actually, in the few moments that I took these things that I hadn't actually got a clue about how they worked. It all became really clear that the, the directions, the instructions, how to set it up and how to play it, meant that all the boxes wonderfully fitted together in this sort of, so it was a normal sized box, but then because there were boxes in boxes, it set up in this huge kind of like thing, then the fish held it together, and the cards helped you play, and you flicked the penguins through the school doorways, and you had to collect fish and win the game. It was brilliant fun. The kids loved it. It was great. But it kind of took reading the instructions to understand the point. That it was all very well saying, here are the things, but until it was brought together and set out just so, it was a little bit baffling. For Paul, tenuous link perhaps, the law was good, but the law was given for us to understand how it works. The instructions in and of themselves aren't the point, but they point to how to play. They point to how we live. They point to what it's all about, how it's put together, how it makes sense in order for the life, the fun to begin. Now, in, in the letter that we, we've been reading and in chapter 3, uh, there's, there's a problem that, that it seems to be that there, there are people who were kind of going back to the rules, the law, the Old Testament, the scriptures and saying, Paul, you've gone off peace. Paul, you're not playing according to what we've been told. What you are doing is making up exceptions. You've gone and made your own game up. It wasn't there. And Paul says, ah, ah, ah. It's absolutely here. Remember, for the, for, for, for the first of the, the, the documents, the Galatians, written very early on, probably AD 48, something like that, maybe 10, 15 years after the death of Jesus, that the, the scriptures that they have, the holy scriptures, were the Old Testament. And Paul says, I'm not just making it, I'm not constructing a new religion. I'm not kind of twisting and distorting. Actually, what I have taught you, the gospel, the good news, is established and written and declared all the way through and through. But those who have come to the church in Galatia are saying, no, no, this grace, this Jesus, this fullness of God through faith alone in Jesus Christ isn't sufficient. You've actually got to become Jewish or you've got to take on board all of the scriptures. You've got to start living out the old ways. 
And Paul says, no. He says, no. And Paul's a really good person to listen to on this. Because it's not as though he's come to it late in the day. From his birth and his childhood and his adolescence and through his life, he's been steeped in the scriptures. He has been, you know, he describes himself in other places as the, uh, of the tribe of Benjamin, of uh, the Jew of the Jew, and, uh, you know, he's been taught under Gamaliel, and, and he was zealous for the law. He's not just kind of making this up on a whim. He understands this deeply. It has been his life and his focus and proved that he was zealous for it because he was there holding the coats as they stoned Stephen and made it his job to stamp out the heresy of Jesus and his followers. And it was only when he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus and Jesus said, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In that encounter with the risen Jesus, that actually the game fitted together for me. Suddenly the revelation that pointing to the Messiah, Jesus, So Paul takes on these Judaizers. Paul takes on these critics. Paul takes on these who are distorting the gospel and says, don't you know, he doesn't kind of say, well, just just forget all the stuff you've learned. Let me me reiterate it for you in big, bold letters in, in new ways. He doesn't. He says, let's look back at what it says. And he starts to talk about in, uh, it, it, when he talks about the law, and particularly in verse 15 and following, he starts to say, the law was there for a point, but the law, like the rules for the board game, isn't the point. It is to know how to play. But they're really, really important. They set the framework. They set the rules. They set the groundwork, and they point to what God intended. Paul says, live in the new ways, not the old. To go backwards is foolish. Paul shows them what the law is pointing out. That the gospel, Jesus, the good news, is the fulfillment, it's the pinnacle of the law. So in this whole chapter, in chapter 3, Abraham has cropped up a lot. It's probable that the Judaizers, those who are saying, Paul, you've gone off beam, you're wrong, are pointing to the law, particularly the covenant made with Moses at Sinai. When, when in, after the Exodus had been rescued, God gathered them on the Mount of Sinai and they gave them the Ten Commandments and, and the covenant of the Sinai covenant and established what it would look like to be the people of God. Do you remember that? It's in Exodus 19 and that sort of place, if you want to look at it later. And in that moment, it formed what it would be to look like the people of God. We will be your people. You will be our God. God says, I choose you out of all the nations to be my people. And they say, yes, this is what it is. And this is, therefore, what it looks like. 
And so rightly they could point to it and say, this, this Paul, this is what it looks like. This is about what you eat and when you celebrate and which festivals you keep and what you don't eat and how you conduct your affairs in, as husband and wife and, and with your children and in business dealings and, and worship and the temple and, and what to sacrifice when and how to fulfill all the obligations that were given. Case closed, they'd say. It's obvious. And Paul says, no, no. Because that covenant was given in the context of another covenant. And one doesn't negate the other far from it. But Paul says, how is it that we were even gathered in Sinai? How was it that we were gathered as the 12 tribes on on that momentous day when God gave the covenant, the, the Ten Commandments to Moses, a holy, holy moment? How did that happen? Well, think back. Ah, and they they perhaps uh, scroll back in their scrolls. Oh, yeah. It all goes back to the patriarch, Abraham. And Abraham lived far away in the east in a place called Ur. And one day God spoke to him and said, Abraham, leave this place and go to a place I will give you. And Abraham, Abraham, as he was called then, his name got changed, said, okay, and off he went. And that step of faith, that beginning, that obedience to the word of God, that choice, that believing in what God had said, changed and altered the course of Abraham's life, Abraham. And it was credited to him as righteous because he went, he believed what God said. That's it. And out of that moment, out of that radical, uh, faithful step that Abraham took, all of the rest followed. So you see this in, in, in chapter 3, verse 6 that we, that we read. Paul quotes from Genesis 15, 6. Abraham was not saved through works of obedience, but because he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Therefore, it shows that, that, that the, the descendants of Abraham are not just biological Jews, biological Israelites. It's not that you become the people of God because you were born to uh, someone who is a direct descendant of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob for whom the promise was given. Are you with me? It's not just that you're the biological descendants that make you the people of God. No. Although that would characterize you as racially Jewish. But, Paul says, it has always been way back from the beginning and all the way through Scripture that those who share the same faith in the gospel of God are Abraham's descendants. Not by birth, but by faith. And this is the good news. And it's shocking. It's shocking because Paul is pulling the rug out from one of the foundational things that they were trusting in. He was saying, God is your security by saying, I can chart back in my family history and say, that's my great, 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 however many greats. This is my lineage. And this is what gives me my position. No. That's not the kingdom of God. 
That's not the good news. It's by receiving in faith what God has said and done. Do you see the big difference? Hugely, hugely shocking for those who would say it's about law. You see, in chapter 3, verse 8, Uh, I'll read it again for you. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So the focus isn't narrow and laser pointed. Here's the Jewish people and it's all about you. It's floodlit and said it's all about the whole world. It starts with God's action in in rescuing Abraham and his plans and purposes through this one man and his family. And it's floodlit to the entirety of the planet, not laser guided to a particular race. You see, God's heart and God's intention was that it was always about every person and every people group in every place to find salvation through faith in the one true God. Good news. And so to continue his argument in chapters 3, 10 to 14, Paul backtracks and says, don't you see it? It's all written clearly. In the Jewish scriptures in the Old Testament, that it all points to this. So in chapter 3, verse 11, the law cannot have been given to teach people how to be saved by their good works. It never was that. If you think about doing enough, doing enough, trying to prove it, trying to work harder, trying to, to show that you merit it, you're barking up the wrong tree. Why? Because he quotes Habakkuk, an Old Testament prophet, chapter 2, verse 4. And Habakkuk says the righteous will live by faith. He's already said Abraham was credited as righteous because he lived by faith. Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. Chapter 3, verse 10, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy, chapter 27. The law was given to make it clear that the Israelites actually needed, uh, they were sinful and they needed a savior. The law was to point this out. Leviticus 18 is quoted, the man who does these things will live by them. See, already in the Old Testament, in these early chapters, early books of the Old Testament, there's this prophetic thrust to say, the law points out our error, but God will bring a rescue. The man who does these things will live by them. Those, even Paul, the most zealous, realized that he couldn't fulfill it. To fulfill everything, everything of the law was too much. But the man who does these things will live by them. In other words, a prophetic announcement, even Leviticus, that book full of do's and don'ts and how-tos, that a perfect man would one day come and fulfill the law on their behalf. Again, Deuteronomy 21, 23. Again, Paul quotes to the Galatians, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole or a tree. A prophetic insight that the perfect man would die on a wooden cross to set us free. Indeed, in nine verses, sorry, in in nine verses, Paul quotes the Old Testament six times. He's not going off peace with them. He's not saying, I'm making this up. He's saying, it's all here. Don't you see? 
The God's passion to save us is not a new invention, but the ongoing heartbeat and passion of God revealed again and again and again. And he goes on, 15 to 25, God's promise to Abraham and to your seed, not seeds. Now, we've not moved into gardening here. Uh, he's talking about offspring, like that which you produce that passes along. And he says, to your seed, not to seeds. See, it may be that Paul's opponents, Paul's those Judaizers, those who Paul is confronting here, may have argued to say that salvation, the good, you know, God's purposes, are restricted to the direct descendants of Isaac and Jacob. He said, we are the seeds of Abraham. We are the genetic descendants. Paul goes, no, it was never about that. And he argues by saying this, God still refers to your seed when he speaks to Abraham, to Isaac in Genesis 26, and Jacob in chapter 28. But God isn't primarily saying to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but rather through the seed of Abraham that another would come, Jesus, the true seed. And indeed, he's saying one is going to come who will be the blessing to all nations, to the world. Interestingly, towards the end of chapter 3, he talks about, uh, in verse 24, So the law was our guardian until Christ came. And then in 25, Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. What does that mean? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a Greek word, a concept that Paul has picked up. And it's, uh, the Greek word is pedagogos. Glad you knew that. Learned a bit of Greek. If you kind of understand sometimes where words come from, that's where the word guardian comes in. In other words, it's, it's, a, it's a Greek concept that he's picked up that the Galatians would know. And it was referred to how society was set up. That there would be wealthy Greek households, those who had uh, good employment, good jobs. And within that household, it wouldn't just be mum, dad, and 2.4 children. Household actually was a wider concept. It would mean perhaps the, you know, the, the head of the household, usually a man, but could be a woman. But they, uh, and then their immediate family and extended family, and also those of servants and probably slaves... And maybe even those who were kind of associated with their businesses or trade. But this pedagogos word is, is actually somebody who was attached to the Greek household, a slave of the owner. And this slave, this pedagogos, was entrusted, this was their job, was entrusted in taking the master's children to and from school. In other words, at the start of the day, the pedagogos would take the children and walk them, make sure they got to school, and make sure they got them home again. And Paul is saying, that's like a picture of the law. It was never intended to be a list of rules by which Israel could be saved. It wasn't about the guardian. But it's about a body of teaching which should keep them on the right path towards faith in Jesus the Messiah. You see, the law, this guardian, showed them their sin, taught them to rely on the blood sacrifices in the temple that they had to repeat again and again and recognize, actually, it's not sufficient. It doesn't sort the problem out, but it shows the seriousness of it and prepare them for the Messiah who would. 
And Paul says, do you know these teachers who are deceiving you, those who've come after me and are, are distorting and altering, they're not actually honoring Moses' law. They're not actually true to what it says. They're distorting it. Don't be so stupid. Don't be so reckless in abandoning the treasure that you've received. And he concludes and he says, chapter 3, 26 to 29, Jesus is the true offspring of Abraham. And no one can be saved unless they put their faith in him. And the law that they're pointing to are actually the markers, the signposts that God gave Moses to distinguish the Jewish people from all other peoples in the world. But now they've been superseded. Because has come the time of salvation. If a person, if you or I, put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we become a seed of Abraham. Not because we've converted to Judaism, but because we've believed God's word. And we become part of the family of God, Abraham's descendants, through faith in the promises of God. Jesus is the savior of all world history and all people. I mean, think of this breadth that he writes about. Think about it if you feel yourself far from God and don't know if he'll accept you. Think about it if you think, oh, I can't, I can't show God I love him enough. Think about it if you think, why would he care about me? whether you're young or older, think about how wonderfully, wonderfully heartening this is. How revolutionary and life-changing. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized in, uh, who were baptized into Christ have baptized yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Think about that. What a mandate for our world still. What a mandate for, for family living. What a mandate that, that Paul is referring to of the gospel when our society is talking about glass ceilings for women that can't get ahead. For there is neither male or female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And in a society that we are talking about Brexit and immigration and, and our place in Europe and the world, and I'm not wanting to kind of make arguments here for government policy, but I am making an argument for how we view our sister and brother. For there's neither Jew or Gentile. It would seem to say that all racism is removed in the new family of God. Because if we believe in Jesus, we become sisters and brothers. We're heirs 
and descendants and the seed of Abraham. We become family. Isn't that true? Heaven forbid we have churches that segregate because they're not gospel-based. They're not Jesus-centered. Neither slave or free. I mean, that's a huge thing. Those with status and privilege and those with power and position. And then the have-nots and those who are on the margins and those who are just there to serve and support and make it all happen. And Paul says, in the kingdom, no. Those economic distinctions are blown out of the water. We're family. In Christ Jesus, baptized. Little plug, we've got a baptismal service on Easter Sunday. I mean, are you baptized into Christ Jesus? If you're not baptized as a believer, I mean, you work out the implications, but Paul says, here, your children of God through faith, for all of you baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. It matters. If you're following Jesus, want to walk with him, baptism is crucial. You see, for Paul, he's... He's not just theorizing. He said everything is at stake. To those who would undermine the centrality and the fullness of the gospel in Jesus Christ. The radical way that it sets us free. And says you don't earn it, you don't merit it. It's not about you've been born in the right position at the right time, in the right place, with the right privilege. Far from it. It's about faith simply and surely in trusting in Jesus Christ. And if we believe, it's credited as righteousness. And you know what? As we believe that and we're given the Holy Spirit in great measure, he talks about that in the early parts of chapter 3. Phil covered that last time. I was going to cover it today, but that would make it too, too long. Uh, But we're given the Spirit freely. We don't have to earn Him, the Holy Spirit. He's given with great abundance. We live now, not saved by grace and living by works. We live uh, by, we're saved by faith and we live by faith in the grace of God. And Paul says it really matters because the outworking of this gospel affects national politics, how one nation relates to the other, when the scope of God's kingdom is global. It affects how we esteem and treat people of the opposite sex. It's not that we become feminists or patriarchs and male-dominated. We have Christ as the head and live under him. And it challenges to say, do we recognize the family bond with rich and young, wealthy and poor, of the dividing walls and lines of our society over generations and still riven with it. So in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. Wow. Wow. Tinker with that, you foolish ones, and you lose everything. But in Christ, we gain all. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Hallelujah. 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 I prayed at the start that we'd be moved in praise in understanding some more from the scripture. I pray that's true. If I didn't make sense or you lost me halfway through, listen to it again when it comes online this week. Alan, the band.